Welcome, everybody, to the table. This is our debut um, Christmas Eve service. It's good to see you all. My name is Matt Moberg. Thrilled that you are with us. I'm thrilled to be with you. Can I read you a story really quick? Okay. Story by a name, by a man named Luke. Chapter 2. You know this story? Okay. In those days, Caesar... In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph, he also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he had belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be scared. I'll bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and went back home into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. They hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. They, they started to run. They skedaddled. They picked up their pace all of a sudden just like that. The Greek word here for hurried off is spudo. Don't check that. At least not the pronunciation of it. Just go with it. I went to seminary. Going to seminary. It's fine. It's 11 o'clock. We're okay. Spudo. Spudo is the implication of rushing, of speeding, of like you are getting somewhere and you're getting there in a hurry. You get going. The shepherds heard the angels speak, and then they spadoed to the manger. Why am I harping on this? I'm harping on this because every time I read this story, as classic as this story is, there's always one piece in this pie that just gets a little bit louder than everything else. It could be a different piece every year, but for me, this year, it was the shepherds in the hills. And it was the fact that they ran to the manger instead of walked, instead of taking their time. Because when I read that they ran, when I read that they spadoed, Uh, the first thing, the first question that comes to mind for me, at least in this moment, and really, honestly, whenever I see anybody running anywhere, is why? Like, why are you doing this yourself? Why are you in such a hurry? Have you never seen the birth of a baby? You don't want to rush up on a scene like that too soon, because it is not pretty. There are reasons there are waiting rooms. There are reasons why there are showers in the delivery rooms. Why are you in such a hurry to get to this baby? Secondly, it's not, hear me now, it's not even really that, uh, compelling of a story 
Like, I mean, there's a lot of babies that are born every day. Why would this baby in particular make you rush to the manger? Why would you rush into town to see a baby? If God is coming into the world, this is not how I would have written the script. Not that I have a say in the matter, but if I did, I would have had Jesus beam down to Bethlehem, probably in like peak form, age 32, give or take a few, okay? He's finely tuned athlete. He's ready to go. He's still holy, but he's also maybe packing a little bit of heat, and he would walk over to Caesar Augustus. He would poke him hard in the chest, and he would say, there is a new sheriff in town. That's what I would do. Don't be concerned, Debbie. This is going to go somewhere. I would expect a little bit more to make me run. But for a baby born in a barn, why do they run? What makes the story even more bizarre is the fact that it's not like there's anybody here that's running to a manger. It is shepherds. And shepherds should not be with babies altogether. Shepherds were ceremonially unclean, and so they were not fit to touch a baby, receive a baby. They weren't supposed to be in the same room as a newly birthed baby. And yet they rush into this scene as if they were. These shepherds, who were they? Well, Luke tells us that the angels came to speak. I mean, when Luke talks about that, he doesn't say the angels came to meet up some, some boys who were working the late shift at a factory far away. He says that the angels broke through the sky and spoke a word to the shepherds who were living in the hills. Now, lest we get that confused with the hills of Hollywood or the greatest television show ever created, the hills, these hills are not for the luxurious. These hills are for the least, for the lost, for the left out, for the burnt out, for the crooked and the corrupt. If you had a record, your address would lead you to the hills. That's where you belong. You were not fit for the rest of society. You were never once rushing into town to see anything. For those without a home, they had the hills, where day by day and by night they watched over sheep, one by one, hoping that it would distract them from the agony of knowing that nobody was watching over them. And yet the shepherds are the first people who hear this news. There is this one night when a voice speaks to them and says, I got a gift for you. There is this baby born in a barn. And immediately they spadoed to go and see that it was so for themselves. Why did they run? Well, as I'm sure you're all expecting, which I know is probably a little predictable, but I'm convinced that to understand the sprint towards the manger, we really have to understand the story of the mistletoe. That's a mistletoe right there. Now, I can see some of you maybe are getting a little hot and bothered about us talking about mistletoes in church. Sometimes people think it is a gateway drug to pregnancy, and I understand that. But let me just take the romance out of it right now. Let me de-beaver this one for you and tell you that mistletoe, it is, uh, it's a word that is actually two words come together, which is actually still kind of romantic, actually, when you think about that. But Mistletoe springs to us from the Anglo-Saxon language, missile being one word, which means dung, and tan being the other word, which means stick. So when you hear love songs, when you hear Bieber talking about under the mistletoe, he sang under the poop stick. That's the truth. That's what, he was, that's what he's singing about. That's what all everyone's getting hot and bothered about. Now, the reason why they called it the, the poop stick, the mistletoe, was um, 
Mistletoes are parasites. They don't grow in your garden. They're not like a flower. They would spring up out of bird droppings on trees. And out of the bird droppings on trees, they would proceed to take over the entire life of the tree. And they eventually, as they spread from top to bottom of the tree, they would feed the other animals with the tree's decay. And these mistletoes were celebrated beyond our modern concept of romance and how we understand today. They go all the way back to the Druids of the first century. Apparently, uh, one Druid was walking through the woods with another Druid, and he goes, you know, I can't put my finger on it, but that's a strange sight right there, because it looks so, it, it's a plant that's coming out of something nasty, and it's taking over the entire tree's life. And the other Druid goes, that's babies. That's what babies do. That's what my babies have done. They have taken over my entire life. And next thing you know, one dot is connected to another, and for the Druids these original people of the first century at the time of Christ, they decide that the mistletoe is a powerful symbol for fertility. Additionally, on top of fertility, the Druids also saw the mistletoe not just for fertility, but also for friendship. They would take the mistletoe and hang it on the doors of homes, on the cribs of their babies, because they believed that it wasn't just powerful, it was also protective. It would keep evil spirits away from making you turn your back on your friends. It would keep evil spirits away who would make you lie to those that you love. Now, lest we think this is just a Druid concept, what we know from history is that the mistletoe was fascinated to many different cultures. The Greeks, for example, they believed that it was powerful and potent and could cure all kinds of diseases. Um, And even in my motherland, Sweden, uh, fascinating stories of Scandinavian warriors who were out at battle when they would be fighting and they would be in the midst of the mistletoe they would stop fighting. They would put their swords away. When they're in the midst of something that was deemed culturally, collectively to be so sacred, they would no longer take a life in its presence. They would completely stop fighting. Which is why, to this day, we continue with our Scandinavian warriors to stop fighting when we're in the midst of something so sacred. This is just, we're not being losers, we're actually just being traditional. This is part of our heritage. Okay? In many different cultures, tribes, and tongues, the mistletoe was this celebrated plant. People couldn't understand it. People didn't know what to do with it. They just knew that it was powerful. Whether or not they could tell you why was secondary to the fact that this was something bigger than just an herb, bigger than just the plant. It was the center of a lot of people's lives. That is, until the Church of England in the Middle Ages came in. And they said, no longer. Now, this madness, it has to stop. Can we just call it what it is? This is a poop stick that you all are celebrating here. And worse yet, you all think that it is super powerful and super potent and that it can protect you, but that's only because of pagan witchcraft and dark forces that have surrounded it, and so he decides to put the whole thing to a stop, and no longer will anybody go about it. And so every Christian that was in town, every Christian that understood uh, the implications of the leaders saying this, they had to turn their whole lives over because they centered this so much. No longer would anybody be decorating the halls of their churches with mistletoes. No longer would people be hanging it up on the walls of their homes. The mistletoe was done for almost everybody except for one. There was a priest in York, a priest of this church here that was built in 1230, York Minster. And the priest said that he wouldn't play long. The priest believed that 
if we outlaw mistletoe, we completely miss the point. The priest told the people that if you miss the beauty and the power of the mistletoe, you're going to miss the beauty and the power of the manger. So convinced was this priest of the power of the mistletoe that on one Christmas Eve, hundreds of years ago, amidst all of the controversy, everyone upset, people don't want the mistletoe around, people are saying it is evil, it is wrong, and, and, and it is gross. This priest, he says, we're not going to do a Christmas Eve service tonight, we're going to do a mistletoe service. And he invites everybody in the city to come with them, not to burn their mistletoe, but to bring it with them. When the people arrived, they would come up to the center of the church, the sanctuary altar area, and they would lay it on the front steps. Imagine how awkward and uncomfortable that would be. For most people, it's their spiritual authority. The church has told them this is evil, this is wrong. You bring that into church, and you're making a sacred thing gross, broken. And so all of these people are sitting in here, and they are shocked at what they are seeing, and what they do not know is that it's about to get a lot worse. Because while they were at their homes all day with their families celebrating Christmas, the priest was in the hills searching for the missing family members that weren't invited. The priest went into the hills, into the roads, and he called on everybody who had a record. He called on the addicts and the angry the crooked and the convicts, the liars and the leavers, those who had stabbed people in the back, those who had walked out on children. He went up to each of them one by one, and he said, I'm having a mistletoe service tonight. Would you be my guest of honor? So the people, they're in the service, and they're waiting for it all to begin, and the priest is nowhere to be found until they hear a noise in the back. And it's the back doors opening up. This is what the inside of the church looks like. They hear the back door open up from behind, and the priest walks in. All these people sitting in the pews are from the town. They're from the city. They don't live in the hills. They live in homes. They shower. They mind their P's and Q's. They do the right thing. They look good. Here comes this priest walking towards the center of a sanctuary where there is mistletoe laid all up in the front. And as the people turn and notice him, they say, there is the priest, but who are those people behind him? The priest keeps walking closer and closer, and as he gets closer, the people notice that there is the priest, and I know who those people are behind them. Because the people behind the priest are the same people they tried to leave behind them in their past. One man on the side of the stage, he notices that behind the priest is his wife, the one who cheated on him five months ago, the one who tore his life completely up. A young family over here starts to weep uncontrollably because for the first time in seven months, they see their sister, their daughter, walking behind the priest, a young girl who chose a bottle over them. A young couple, newly married, they start talking back and forth because there's that guy they took all their money. It sold them on a scheme that didn't work. In the midst of all of these wounded people, the priest parts down the middle, and he walks with all of the wounders. And then he brings them up front, and he has them stand in the midst of all the mistletoe. And there they are. Imagine that moment. The wounders and the wounded locking eyes. 
They are looking out at a sea of faces of people they have hurt, people they have let down, people they have caused pain to. And the priest does something pretty remarkable. In the midst of this moment, in this room full of wounds, the priest walks up to each of the people, and he looks at them and he says, I know who you are, and I know what you've done. But Christmas is the reminder that God forgives you, and so do we. You can come home now. Can you imagine what that moment would be like to stand in front of those people like that? I mean, it's not hard, right? We all have those ghosts of Christmas paths, those things that haunt us, those things we did or didn't do, the things that we said or didn't say enough. We have these mistakes that we tend to carry with us, and the idea of actually standing in front of the people who have been hurt by our mistakes and hearing the priest, the spiritual authority of the city say, it's okay, you can come home from the hills, shepherd boy. You don't have to run anymore, shepherd girl. If you've ever experienced the power of being pardoned, the sound of somebody saying, we want you to come home, when you thought that that was the last place you'd ever be wanted. If you've ever experienced the liberating power of being forgiven, and not forsaken, being told that you're okay, then you know why the shepherds ran to the manger. Because when the shepherds heard the angels say that God was born in the barn, the shepherds heard that if God can be born in that dirt there, perhaps God could be born in my dirt here. If the sins of humanity, if what we have done, if all the different ways we have hurt one another and turned on one another can't keep this God away, then nothing ever will. That is the story throughout Scripture. In the presence of the baby in the dirt, the trash, the parasite, the unthinkable place for a God to be born, the treasure of heaven is born into the trash of the earth to give the trash of the earth an encounter with the treasure of heaven. It's the ultimate way that God could have ever chosen to take on flesh and to say, you can come home now. You weren't meant for the hills. You belong here with me. The priest in that service, he had people stand up, and what they ultimately realized is that the gift wasn't given just to the people who were being forgiven, but also to the people who got to forgive. They understood the meaning of Christmas, When the angel says to Joseph that Jesus, that's what you're going to need to call him because he's somebody that will save you from your sins. How do you get saved from sins? You stop carrying them around with you. I want to do something with you guys. Uh, You can't see it because it's really dark in here right now, but we have a mistletoe hanging up and down this wire. Could you stand to your feet? We are gathering underneath this mistletoe tonight that you can't see, but you're going to trust me that it's there. And while I'm not going to ask you to kiss your neighbor, I do want you to experience the kiss of grace and forgiveness. And I want you to hear the Christmas music, the original song that says that God loved you so much that he was born in the filth and the stank and the stunk of animals. If even it just meant that he had a chance to be with you. 
So do me a favor. Will you close your eyes and hold out your hands? I want you to think about, uh, maybe it's not consciously, but people that you have been angry with, people that have hurt you, people that have let you down, people that didn't do what they were supposed to do, people that left too soon, people that said too much, people that didn't say enough. I know they're not likely in this room, but I want you to release them in the presence of God, like that priest did in York. You don't have to carry this anymore. Christmas is the reminder that God forgives us, and so also we forgive you too. And then we set it down. For those of you who more so relate to the people who were the wounders that walked into the room of the wounded, I want you to hear that you're okay. Psalm 103 says that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God separates our sin from us. He can't remember it anymore. Whatever you have done, wherever you have been, the missteps, the misdeeds, in the presence of Christ, You can come home now. You are forgiven. You do not have to carry that with you anymore. Everybody say amen. You have a seat. We live in a broken world and we're broken people. And I think there's not a one of us in this room that haven't been a wounder and haven't been wounded. But that's the beauty of the manger. That's the joy in Christmas. The hope we have is that when the word became flesh, it changed everything. Because as Matt said, we're forgiven. We're given the power to forgive and to accept forgiveness as well. So this God that loved us so much that was born in the dirt among animals It's this God that we celebrate when we come together and we share in communion. And we remember that love. A love that changes everything. Changes us, changes the world. And it's a love that says, welcome home. All are included. Everyone's invited. And it's that God that we celebrate on Christmas. And that God sat at a table the night before he died with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it and he said this is my body broken for you when you eat this remember me he took the cup and he poured wine into it and he said this is my blood shed for you the new covenant I've come for you all And when you drink from this cup, remember me. Remember that love. And so that's what we do when we come together. We take the bread and we dip it into the cup. And we remember a God that says, welcome home. Y'all belong. And you're all beloved. So during the music, we invite you forward. And there'll be people here with gluten-free elements 
and there'll be people on the sides as well, and you can take the bread and dip it into the cup. And so with that, I ask you to stand, and together we will pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.